Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. As everybody knows, if you've been paying attention, April has been Historic Preservation Month. We started off with Oklahoma's Deputy Shippo, Linda Ozan, and she talked about uh, historic preservation as a whole. And then we had Oklahoma's National Register Coordinator, Dr. Matthew Pearson, and he talked about the process of getting something listed on the National Register and how it's important. And now, sort of going down that scale, getting a little thinner in, in the range of scope, I have Trey Thompson on. He is the currently the executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. So this is twice now that I've had an executive director of the Historical Society on. But we're going to talk about what is, without a doubt, the second largest rehabilitation project in the state of Oklahoma. And that would be uh, the rehabilitation of the Oklahoma State Capitol. And so I'm going to have Trait come on here real quick, talk about how he got that job, and then we'll uh, sort of go into sort of more specifics of the craziness that that project had to have been. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> so um, just real quick, the Cliff Nose Virgins, how did you end up in charge of that massive project? Well, Jack, first, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, as you know, I'm a recent podcaster myself, and so... Yes. I know these things aren't always as easy as we make them seem to the outside world sometimes. So I appreciate you doing this and it's fun to be on and talk about a project that's near and dear to my heart, which was the restoration rehabilitation of the Oklahoma State Capitol. So to answer your question, in, at the end of 2010, I started working in the President Pro Tem's office in the State Senate as his policy advisor, and that was Brian Beeman. And I had a chance to work on numerous pieces of legislation and policy issues. But one of the things that, of course, really interested me was the opportunity to work on legislation to provide funding for the restoration of the state capitol building. When I started in 2010, uh, not too long after that, was when they put the yellow barricades up in front of the building and they put some scaffolding up as people were walking in the building to make sure that pieces of stone wouldn't fall and hit people in the head as they were getting close to the building. And, you know, after almost 100 years of service, the building is was just getting to the point where it needed, it needed a good restoration project. And, you know, and then in 2012, he, the pro tem nominated me to be his desert, uh, his representative on the Capital Preservation Commission. So okay. I got the opportunity to really kind of dive down deep inside and learn more about the history of the building and the history of the maintenance on it or lack thereof. <laughs> and then uh, in 2012, the pro tem and Senate leadership did a bond bill for $160 million to restore the Capitol. And it passed the Senate pretty easily, but it went over to the house where it failed a terrible, terrible death over there. Uh, <laughs> It takes 51 votes to get a bill out of the out of the House, and that bill got 15. 
So oh, yeah. <laughs> it tells you tells you what a big uphill climb we had to try and get funding for it. The next year in 2013, they did a bill where they appropriated special cash for the project, but unfortunately, unfortunately, they rolled that into a a tax cut bill, and somebody challenged it, and it was struck down by the Oklahoma Supreme Court for being log rolling, which is basically putting two or more uh, disparate subjects into the same bill. Mm-hmm. Finally, in 2014, the legislature passed and the governor signed a $120 million bond issue for the restoration of the state capitol. And at that point, I had been in the leg- working for the Senate for four sessions, and I loved my work there and all the policy issues I got to work on, but I really felt like I was ready to move on and do something else. And from my time on CPC and working on the legislation for the capitol, I was really intrigued with the idea of going over and helping in whatever capacity that I could help to get that project off the ground. So I approached OMES because the legislation had said that OMES would manage the project. I approached OMES about being involved in the project because I knew that this was going to be a very high profile construction project. I knew that it was going to be one of the more expensive construction projects in state history, other than maybe some massive highway projects that we do. And just with the people in the building, you know, you, you, you have to have a certain amount of finesse and, and know-how about politicians and how the legislature works to advance a project like that. Now, I, I'll say this, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so I was perhaps a little naive and it's probably good. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what I was getting into fully when I went to do that project. So, uh, but I approached OMES and Preston Dorflinger was the director of OMES at the time. And my approach was basically, I feel like you're going to need someone who understands the building and then understand how the building operates and functions in terms from a political perspective. And I wanted to be involved and help. And so uh, next thing you know, in July of 2014, I was hired on to be project manager of the restoration project. And so Uh, I had no construction experience, and that wasn't really what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was to help guide the project and make sure that it was going to be done in the best interest of the building. Because a lot of times in state government, it really comes down to how fast can we do it and how cheap can we do it without much consideration to how should we do it. And I wanted to be sort of, if you will, the conscience of the project to help us make sure that we're doing the kinds of things that we need to do to repair the building in a way that's going to be long lasting and not just do it, you know, as a quick fix. And then we're going to move on down the road. Right. Right. Well, it looks, it looks incredible. So you, at least the time you were there did a fantastic job of keeping that in mind. So uh, thank you for that. (laughs) Cause that is, you are correct. That is rare in government to not go with the, uh, you know, the, project of the lowest bidder, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you pay for what you get for, but the capital looks look, looks amazing. Yeah, you know, we there's, there's a statute that says that the governor can just choose the contractor to work mm-hmm. on the capital, that we didn't have to go through a competitive bidding process or anything like that. And, you know, when I was talking with Preston, I said, you know, the governor can do this, but I said, this is a big project with a lot of eyes on it. And I, I felt very strongly that we needed to work through the established process of selecting contractor or contractors that we do for any other project in state government. 
I felt like that if we if we were to just award the, the contract to somebody that it would get us off on kind of a bad foot in terms of transparency and just right uh, and, and gaining the public's trust that we truly did pick the best people to work on the building. And so we went through a pretty thorough process where we we designed our RFQ and an RFQ it's request for qualifications and we were looking for those contractors who really who had done similar projects in the past who had done large construction projects like this or could assemble a team that had that good experience. Then we went to the RFP, which was a request for proposal process. And in both stages, we had contractors who were interested in the project come make presentations to us. Another thing that we did is we set up a five-member committee to judge the projects. And one of the, the things I think we did really well is that we didn't just choose people within OMES to score the submissions. In fact, uh, if you remember Harry Sims from Chippo, I, he was. I do. Was, yeah. <laughs> so Harry was one of our was one of our uh, judges who judged the qualifications of the companies. So we had three companies submit. We had decided to break the project out into interior project and exterior project, and three companies submitted on both of those. So. They were J.E. Dunn Construction, Manhattan Construction, and uh, CMS Willowbrook. And I think CMS had, had uh, paired with Flint Co. on that particular project. Okay. Ultimately, the way we ended up going was we chose J.E. Dunn Construction because they scored really high for the exterior. They had done a lot of really intense historic exterior renovations. They'd worked with limestone quite a bit, which is what the preponderance of material on our exterior was. And we ended up going with Manhattan construction on the interior. Once again, Manhattan had a lot of expertise already working with the interior of the building. And so it might've been a little bit difficult, but we ended up having two different major contractors on the building, which it was managing two competitors in this very competitive construction industry who were on the same job right. site. But I feel like we got the best, the best teams for each aspect of the project. And looking back on it now, eight years later, I, I feel like that we, we did it in the right way. Although, uh, in some cases, we kind of were feeling around in the dark a little bit to try and do it. <laughs> yeah. I remember when uh, the legislation passed, I spent a lot of time in the comment section of local media of people complaining, I can't believe the state is wasting the money on this. This is an embarrassment. And I'm like, you know, it'd be really embarrassing limestone falling off the building and killing people that would be really embarrassing yeah. and maybe you want your capital to oh i don't know shine <laughs> yeah it's hard because you're putting money into your state capital which i call the people's house and it's the place where the people's business is done unfortunately a lot of people because they don't like how the legislature operates sometimes they conflate that and and don't like the building itself. Yeah. But, but we have to remember, if we go back to the history of the state capitol, that Oklahoma was essentially a homeless government for the first 10 years of statehood. And it's right. because we had the capital in Guthrie, and then through an election, the, the capital was moved to Oklahoma City. And then we, you know, there were, they were, Guthrie and Oklahoma City were fighting about the capital for several years. And so all during that time, Oklahoma state government is sort of located in these downtown buildings in Oklahoma City and didn't have a permanent home. So the fact that we got a capital in 1917 was a really significant event. It put us on the map 
You know, right. we weren't this sort of backwater state. We were a real state. We had a legitimate state capital. It was a big, big deal. So fast forward to now. And of course, there's always people who want to who want to criticize uh, anytime you're going to spend money and, and spend a lot of money. You know, well, why won't we spend it on roads? Why don't we spend it on teachers? Why don't we spend it on corrections? You know, you can you can pick anything you want right. to and say, why don't we spend more on X, Y, or Z? But the fact of the matter is, the state capital, it's our seat of government. And and I remember when we went to Kansas and spoke to the Speaker of the House in Kansas. Kansas had just finished up their restoration project by the time we started ours. And the Speaker of the House said, our capital is our front door to the world. And that really resonated with me because our capital is where people come to do the business of the state. And it it was terrible. It smelled like yeah. sewage. The place was falling apart. It, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty on the inside in those public places. But if you got behind the walls, plumbing was falling apart. The electrical system was long antiquated and, and was really on its last legs. 80% of the building wasn't fire sprinkled. You had uh, all of these things that were happening and, you know, the exterior limestone falling apart, the, the windows were rusting on and on and on and on. And we find out later that the roof was terrible shape. Yeah. So it was, I think a lot of people thought at first we were just remodeling offices for legislators, right? Oh, right. just yeah. offices nicer. And that wasn't the thing at all. It wasn't the driving motivation behind it. It really was to save this building. Now, fast forward eight years to where we are today. And you essentially have a 1917 historically restored building, but all the guts of that building that make it operate are 100% 21st century brand new. 100% of the plumbing has been completely replaced. The electrical system is as modern as you'll get in any building that was built now as anywhere. The building Mm -hmm. is fire sprinkled now. It's ADA compliant now. And did we, did we, Make offices nicer, yes, because it is an office space. It is a place where people have to be productive in a work environment. We had to do those things like run data cabling and, you know, the carpet had been there 25, 30 or sometimes even longer years. Mm -hmm. So we had to do those things to make it a better work environment. We also had to do the things to improve the infrastructure. And that is the vast majority of what the money was spent on to to make sure that this building would be functional for another 100 years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, That's actually sort of some of the questions I was going to ask. But I mean, I don't think had the renovation started on the Capitol, it would have been the backdrop for American Ninja Warrior, not once, but twice, because they liked it so much the first time. And I think had it not been, or not had the work done to it that it had, it probably wouldn't have done that. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, you know, side little weird benefit. And who knows how many people that brought when they came to Oklahoma and be like, hey, let's go check out the Capitol. Well, there's a whole contingent of people when they travel around the country, they go check out state capitals. Yep. I happen to be one of those people. And your state capital is an opportunity to educate people about who you are as a state and what your values are. And, and when you walk through the building and you see the art, uh, which it's not there right now, but it'll be coming back in the next couple of months. It's been in storage for a few years. You see mm-hmm. the art. You see the art that tells the story about us as a people and, and uh, our history. And so not only that, but it shows that we take pride in ourselves. And one of the things that gratifies me the most is I'll run into people working in the building and different lobbyists and people who are bringing business folks in from out of state 
to the state capitol. Uh, they're bringing in other, you know, interest groups and parties, and they'll say, "I'm not ashamed to bring people to our state capitol." You know, yeah, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm not ashamed to show off this building anymore because, you know, because of the renovations and the restorations, it shows that we care about ourselves now. And I think that's a really important message. And I think anytime you can put your best foot forward as a state, you should take the opportunity to do it. I'm also really thankful that we did the project when we did. You know, if we had waited two or three or four or five more years to try and do the project, I, I mean, I don't think the building would have fallen apart around us. But it just would have got worse. And as we're seeing now with prices of materials and construction, we did a, did two bond issues totaling $245 million for the capital. And, and we're coming in right at about $280 million of expenditures because we've earned interest and premium on those bonds. But had we started this project today, we'd be well over $350 million to do this project and maybe even Easily. more than that. And that's just and the cost of a two by four. It, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> anybody who's done a home remodel project lately knows how expensive materials have gotten. And so time is always of the essence. It's better to do your renovation today than tomorrow. What's even better is to do is to take care of your stuff as you go. So you don't have to put this major investment into your, into right. your, uh, into your asset. But if you're not going to do that, it's better to start that. You know, that's one of the reasons we're pursuing the bond issue for our OHS properties around the state right now it is because we, we need to fix it. And if we wait five years, it's just going to get all that much more expensive. I always say, you know, my mantra is, uh, I, first of all, they always say you're not supposed to give yourself a nickname, but I kind of have, I, I call myself an evangelist for deferred maintenance. And, <laughs> and I always say, if we're going to have it, we need to take care of it. If we're not going to take care of it, then we really shouldn't have it. You know, we should right. do something else with it. Um, but we need to we need to take care of our things. And thankfully, in 2014 and in 2016, the legislature said, yes, we're going to invest. And Governor Mary Fallon both times signed those bills and said, yes, this is worth investing in. And now, you know, the Speaker of the House in Kansas, when we went there, he said, you know, it's funny. We can't find anybody who was against this project at the very right. end of it. And <laughs> yeah. it's the same way now in Oklahoma. And I love that. You know what? I was telling somebody the other day, I said, I love that everybody's proud of this project and that everybody, you know, people are taking credit for it. And I, I think that's great because it's a lot worse. It's a lot better to be in that situation than everyone pointing at one guy and saying, oh, it was his fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've had a successful project. We've done it in a way where we took the resources we were given and we stretched them as far as we could, but we didn't sacrifice on quality. My, ma my mantra on this whole project was no banding, that right. we were not going to leave a problem for somebody else to fix down the road. And we encountered different places where we could have saved a little money here and there to take the cheap way out or the easy way out. Case in point was uh, the when we were putting in the new visitor entrance, we had to tie into the storm drain that runs on 21st Street, which is that street right in front of the Capitol, between the Capitol and the oil derrick. There's a big storm right. drain that runs underneath that. And so when, when Manhattan Construction went to camera that pipeline, they found that it was Swiss cheese. It was in terrible shape. And they said, well, we could put this liner inside. It'd probably last 20, 30 years. You know, eventually it's going to deteriorate. And, you know, but it would save you, you know, $150,000 if we did it this way. And we all looked at it and said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to, you know, I don't want to leave a problem for somebody to solve 20 years. 
And so we replaced the entire lot. And it was a $350,000 hit about to our budget. Um, but, you know, it was worth it because we, right. we weren't going to leave a problem for somebody else. We had several different instances along the way where we could have done, you know, oh, well, let's just patch it up. And, you know, by the time it fails again, we're all going to be long gone. But that's not the mantra here. The mantra here was do it right the first time. And I think that if we can get that in the state of Oklahoma to be our culture, you know, it hasn't always been our culture. And I, I feel like that hopefully right. we set an example. So from now on, we'll start thinking about doing things right the first time instead of kind of patch and punt, so to speak. Yeah, I feel like a lot of projects in Oklahoma have a it's just good enough mentality and not a, you know, let's take that next level up right. sort of mentality. Because you can go in. I don't know, X town and see like box stores in the front of the facade, you know, they're all nice. And you're like, why don't we get that in Oklahoma? Well, the city doesn't require them to make yeah. the front facade nice. And that's because we have the, it's just good enough mentality. <laughs> right. So I, I understand what you're saying with the capital. And that is fantastic that you did that. And sort of what you were saying too about the doing it now, you know, they say the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time to plant a tree is today. And you were doing the, you know, hey, we need to do this now. So, so I appreciate that. And, you know, I didn't know that I was a preservationist for buildings until I got my job in Shippo. And then it turned out that I was. <laughs> and so seeing the project of the Capitol just from across the street and hearing people talk about it was always just really, really uh, sort of fascinating to kind of be on the inside, even though, you know, I was just at the ship of, so. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Jack, because you, when you think about our history, there are very few things that have, that tangibly tie us to our past. And so, you know, we have documents, uh, we have books, we have a few different things, but buildings are one of the few things that we have that can put us right back in that environment of the past. And we can see what it must have felt to live like that. And so when you go through any small town in Oklahoma, if you go into a building that was built in 1895 or 1902 or whenever else, you know, the reason it's important to save that is because that's that connection to the past. And you can walk into that building and you can get a sense for what it must have been like to live during that time period. And the other part of that is there was a craftsmanship and equality to that that style of building that they did in the early years that today we just don't do. You know, we're, we're a much more of a throwaway culture. And so we don't design many buildings today to last 200 years. Most of our buildings right. today are designed to last 40, 50, 60 years, maybe 75 years, and then to be torn down and replaced again. And so when you have a building like the Capitol, you know, when you have the beautiful marble floors and you have the, the ornamental plaster and you have the stained glass and all of those things that true craftsmen put their hearts and souls into making because there's the, that sort of beauty environment. And also the Capitol is telling you something. You know, when you walk in at that historic main entrance and you look up at that giant staircase that's leading you up, that giant marble staircase that's leading you up to the fourth floor where the House and Senate chambers right. are. They're trying to tell you through the through the story of architecture that this is an important place, that important things happen here. And they're trying to awe you and take your breath away. That doesn't happen very much in, in today's built environment. And so right. we have to preserve 
where we do have that, we have to preserve it because once it's gone, it's gone. We'll never get it back. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that's why I'm passionate about it. And that's why I'm so excited that one of my job descriptions is to be the, the you know, the shippo for the state of Oklahoma is because I get to participate in, in helping to save our built history. Right. Yeah. Well, that's cool that you've, appreciate the headache that can be preserving or preserving buildings <laughs> my favorite thing in the capital in this may sound weird but my absolute favorite thing in the capital so the oklahoma capital has four sort of stairways in the corner yeah and every last one of them the marble is worn down from people from a hundred years of people walking up and down those steps and i've just always found that cool because you know that's that's marble <laughs> and it has yeah. been worn down so that you can see the, you know, sort of the, the going up impression and the going down impression. I just, I don't know, maybe I'm a nerd, but I've just always found that to be really, really cool. That well, I think that. you're, I think you're in good company because it's honestly one of the comments that I get most often. In fact, people ask me, you're not, you're not going to replace those steps, are you? You know, because they yeah. wanted to keep them. And there is this idea, you know, you were literally walking in the footsteps of a hundred or so years of people who have come before you. And there's something, I don't know, a bit magical about that. And, and in so many places, as you come to a landing, so many people put their right foot down and spun to go down the next landing that now you're starting to get a little bit of a divot in there. And in most cases, we didn't replace those either. Because it, it is that it's nostalgia, but it's also this idea that, that we're not alone. And 50 years from now, someone's going to be walking down those steps and doing those same things that we did. So yeah. it was exciting. You know, we, we thought about for a while, do we need to replace those stair treads? Is it a safety issue? And ultimately, we came down to the fact it's not a safety issue. It's one of those things that is important and tells a story and it needs to remain. Well, on behalf of, I guess, fellow nerds like me, then thank you for, for keeping those. And while we're on the subject of marble, uh, the Oklahoma Capitol has a ton of it. Yeah. And of course, it was all sourced, you know, over 100 years ago. I'm sure there was probably some that had to be replaced. Were you able to, like, go to the same sort of, you know, state or wherever, where it initially came from, so that the marble at least you know, would match what's in the rest of the building. Was that difficult? Um, yes and no. Uh, there's an interesting story behind that. First of all, in the original capital specs, there are a few different flooring materials that they looked at. Um, they looked at marble and they looked at terrazzo primarily. Mm -hmm. And we probably would have had terrazzo floors in the Oklahoma capital had it not been for a quarry in Alabama who wanted their marble in the Oklahoma State Capitol so badly that they brought down their prices to match what it would have cost to put terrazzo in. And okay. so we we have marble floors in our building because uh, there was a there was a quarry who badly wanted uh, their floors in the in the Capitol. So that's an interesting story in and of itself. When we were looking at replacement marble, so one of the things that we had to do is the ground floor level, which we used to call the basement, which on the original plans for the building was called the sub-basement. 
originally the sub basement was supposed to be for utility and storage space and there weren't supposed to be very many offices and of course as government grows you start more and more putting offices down there because it's the only space you have left by the way i do want to say about the sub basement which we called the basement uh for so long up until this project was done the uh the 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 urban myth was that there were stables down there and that's that's actually not true. There never was. There never <laughs> okay. was stables down there. Uh, that you know, there was also an urban myth that it had a dirt floor. Uh, that's not true either. It, it always had a concrete floor down there. So we did have to, we did have to kind of, uh, you know, bust, uh, burst some balloons from some people who had a certain ideas. These myths sort of get started and they take on a life of their own. But one of the things that we wanted to do is because we decided to create a new visitor entrance at the southeast corner of the building. And that visitor entrance would come in at the basement level. We decided that that whole floor, we wanted to make a public floor, you know, make it more uh, public friendly. And so we decided we were gonna raise the ceiling heights. We're gonna put, we were gonna put all the utilities underneath the floor. And then we were also gonna widen the corridors, make it more monumental. Um, we uh, probably the boldest thing that we had to do, and this is something that uh, would not um, would not have been allowed in a historic tax credits project, but something right. that, that we were allowed to do on this just basically because um, um, we had to make it functional. But we decided that we were going to cut the hole in the first floor and bring the rotunda down to the ground level because right. we were making the, the ground floor the former basement to where it would be all um, visitor amenities. So when you walk in down there, you're going to have food service. You're going to have the expanded restroom bank. You're going to have the new state capitol museum. You're going to have the gift shop and the tour place. So all that stuff would be right there at that one level. And we wanted to connect it up with the rest of the, with the rest of the building. Well, as part of that, we, there was no, any place that there wasn't original marble, original plaster, or anything like that, we classified as an adaptive reuse area. So it gave us a lot of broad leeway in how we um, how we remodeled that area. And basically, we wiped it off the map and started over again. One of the things that we ended up doing was putting marble down there on all the floors, and we had to uh, we had to break up the concrete and take all the concrete floor up, first of all, because we're digging all new plumbing lines and right. electrical conduit and all those kinds of things. But second of all, because uh, there was not really a flat surface all the way through, so you couldn't lay marble on top of the concrete that was down there. Right. And so uh, making that a public floor, we decided we were going to put new marble in, but we weren't going to mimic what was above in the historic areas. We wanted to have that differentiation. We wanted to make it to where we had um, uh, we had some white marble, but we broke it up with some gray marble along the way. We we went to uh, I, I say we the Manhattan Construction who got the interior contract, and I'll mention that J.E. Dunn Construction got the exterior contract. We Manhattan ended up going to the quarry in Alabama, doing some research there. There was a quarry here in Oklahoma, Marble City, that wanted to provide the the um, wanted to provide the marble for the capital. Unfortunately, both of those didn't work out for a variety of reasons, and one of those was cost. It would just um, it, it was going to double our costs. So 
the vast majority or all the marble that came in, we actually sourced out of China. And it was a, a, both a quality and a color match to the, the, the marble that is, was existing in the building. And so on that ground floor, we, we laid, oh gosh, I forget how many hundred thousand square feet of new marble down there. And then throughout the rest of the building, it was really just patches. If there was a, if there was a tile of marble that was cracked or something like that, we would replace it on a spot basis. Right. But we really didn't replace a lot of marble. And in fact, um, there were times when some folks wanted us to, because at different times they glued carpet down over the marble and they'd used a type of glue that seeped into the marble and stained it irreparably. And some folks wanted us to take that, that all that old marble up that had been stained and replaced it. We actually refused to do that just because we wanted to preserve the original marble, even if it wasn't in pristine condition, because it was that original material. And as a reminder to never put carpet over the marble again. Yeah, I always say, <laughs> you know, this is a, a living reminder of don't do stupid things to your building. Yes. You know, because you have to live with them. And so there are places in the building where you'll see uh, there's a third floor house corridor where you walk in and you see stained marble. Uh, the third floor Senate uh, Senate corridor where their staff space is, you can see scarred and stained marble because of things like that. Other places where they glued carpet down over the marble, but it was in later years and the glue didn't have, I don't know, whatever it was that was in it that, that caused that staining. In other places, like in the governor's large conference room where we pulled up the carpet and we went through the nine-step grinding and polishing process. That marble just polished up great. And it was like nothing was ever there. But in some places where they'd done carpet, maybe back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, something like that, whatever was in that glue just stained the heck out of it. When we took core samples of it, that you would look and that, that staining had sunk down, you know, three-quarters of an inch. Marble's wow. a very porous material. Yes. Most people don't know that. And so, you know... We went through a grinding process and tried to grind off the top as much as we could. But you can't grind off that. You can't grind off three quarters of an inch for sure. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you can grind off a, a millimeter or so or two millimeters. But uh, you get you start doing that and then your floor is going to get wavy uh, the farther you go. Right, right. And so ultimately, like I said, now it's it's a monument and it's a story. Hey, let's let's treat our buildings better than we have in the past. And let's put some thought when we want to do a renovation. Let's put some thought into the type of renovation we should do. That's that's a really interesting story. <laughs> and it's a cool part of the history. I appreciate you telling that. And um, I know when I sent you the questions on what I wanted to talk about, this this might be boring to some people, but the plumbing in that building was like atrocious. Was it not like whole sections rotted away and the only reason things sort of went down was gravity uh did i hear that correctly <laughs> yeah so uh, well especially the plumbing so it was original cast iron plumbing and over time especially the plumbing that was kind of up and through the building had been frankenstein together so you'd see a cast iron section attached to a pvc section with a lot of caulking and tape and whatever else you gotta <laughs> yeah. do to keep all that together but really where it was worse is the plumbing lines that were buried underneath the building, where in many cases it had rot away to nothing. And all you had was sort of the empty hole there. And you didn't really have you didn't really have any plumbing that was left anymore. So the plumbing was awful. 
Um, and we didn't leave a bit of it. The whole building, the plumbing has been 100% replaced with modern plumbing. So that's, you know, it, almost if you don't get anything else out of the, you, out of the project <laughs> except for that, it's a huge win. The, but what we didn't find out until we got into the project a little more is that we thought the plumbing was the most dire part of the work that we needed to do, especially at first. What we found out was the electrical system was in much worse shape than and as we started getting into troubleshooting some areas, we actually lost power in the whole east wing of the building one time, and we're not quite sure that we were going to ever get it back up again under the current equipment. Oh, so wow. a lot of times what we would do is we would actually go put in temporary electrical switch gear and equipment and run everything through temporary equipment until we had a chance. And, and we were tackling the building in quadrants. You know, the building mm -hmm. is divided up into quadrants, and so we would tackle the building in quadrants, and so we would go into an area, and remember, we're having to work in an occupied building. We don't have the luxury of just going in there and just ripping a bunch of stuff out, because we, the legislature has to use it, the public has to use it, the people that work there have to use it, so we couldn't just go rip out stuff and then replace it later. We had to put the new infrastructure in and then transfer from old over to new and then rip a lot of the old infrastructure out. But what we found out in some parts of the building was the electrical equipment was so bad that we thought if we lose power one more time, we might not get it back up. But we had to accelerate some of our electrical work into a few parts of the building to get it onto temporary power just so that we could keep it up and running. Otherwise, you know, there was the possibility that if, if a section went out, we might lose it for weeks before we could get it back again. Wow. So there was... Uh, yeah, the electrical system was, you know, it's this Frankenstein's monster of a hodgepodge that had been put together over years and years and years. Thankfully, now we have modern electrical switchgear. Uh, we have all of the conduit that feeds under the ground from the west side of the building into the new electrical switchgear room. We have a, a computer screen in there where you can go troubleshoot any electrical equipment anywhere in the building from that one screen in the main electrical room. And now we also have, for the first time in the building's history, an emergency power generator. So that's good. What a lot of people don't you don't think of is, especially from an IT point, you've got you've got you had a, the main main IT uh, room for not only Capitol but several other buildings in the Capitol complex in the Capitol. And if we lose power to that building, there's a lot of state agencies that lose IT service. And so one of the problems would be is they would have to like put a generator on a truck, bring it over there, you know, and who knows how long you would be out of IT service at that point. So we put in a brand new Cummins, uh, Cummins generator, custom built for the capital, cost over a million dollars just for that one piece of equipment. Oh, wow. And, uh, and now it's connected into natural gas. And so if the power goes out, it's an emergency power generator, so it doesn't power the whole building, but it powers some emergency features like all of your IT rooms and closets in the building, elevators, security equipment, emergency exit lighting, and things like that. So, uh, so, and it's automatic and it's hooked into natural gas. So as long as, as ONG or whoever provides the natural gas keeps providing it, that generator keeps running. And uh, we had our first chance to test that during the ice storm last October, October of 21, I guess, when that, when, uh, or 
I guess it was 20. No, 20, 20, 20, yeah. October 20. I had to sit there and do my math. But that was, a, we got to test that generator and it worked like a charm. And so that's a big, important addition to the building. Within losing power, that thing kicks on within two to three seconds and we're off and running again. So That's that's awesome. So I guess there was still knob and tube wiring in that uh, that building then, was there? Yes, there was. And in some <laughs> cases, it was still being used, believe it or wow. not. Wow. Oh, no, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> One of the um, – I used to do work for um, the highway patrol as a security officer for the Capitol complex. So I worked in the Capitol doing that before my current job. And in the corners of every floor, there was just this conglomeration of cables and wires, you know, that that's how you run your data and everything. And then it was all painted to sort of look like the wall. Yeah. So obviously I know that that's gone now because everything's behind the wall. But did you guys plan it in a way so in the future, if you need to run new wiring through, it's easy to do? <laughs> or yeah, easier. That, that was a big, oh my gosh, that was a big priority for us. So not only did you have all that wiring that was attached to the plaster walls in the public areas, it was just so ugly. I called that, when I do my lecture on the Capitol and I show the photos of that, I call it the path of least resistance because they could have taken the time and run that behind the walls and, and found that pathway, but they decided not to. They just thought, okay, we're just going to run it through here. And, and not once, like 15 oh, or 20 times. <laughs> yeah, all over the place. And, and once again, it was, it's that mentality of, okay, you know what? We, we could spend a little extra money to, to put it behind the wall, but we're just going to run it through here because it's easier. Uh, one, and then you would look and you would go into office areas and you'd pull out those ceiling tiles with those drop-down cables or with those, uh, those drop-in ceilings. And it would just be a mess of wire just going everywhere. Well, what we found out when we started tracing those wires, because we had to know where it all went, what it all right. did, 80% of the wiring in the building was just abandoned. You know, they somebody would come and run a new wire and they wouldn't take out any of the old stuff. And it was just a mess. And we had to trace out every single one of those wires. Because remember, we're working in an occupied building. We didn't have the luxury of just pulling a bunch of junk out. Right. And so we now have throughout the entire building, uh, we have cable tray that goes everywhere. And so we're not, no longer are we running cable or wiring just over the tops of ceilings willy nilly. We're not running it, you know, we're not just picking our own pathway. There's pathway for everything now. And everything is meticulously planned out. And I remember, you know, old habits die hard. I remember some folks from one of the cable contractors that came and they just wanted to kind of string some wire above a ceiling. We were like, no way, Jose. We work too hard, and you're going to follow the pathway. You're going to do this exactly the way we need to do it. I hope there's somebody uh, that's there now uh, making sure that that's still happening because it's really, really important. But, yeah, we've got cable tray running everywhere now. There's designated pathways for everything. That's – a lot of times government does not plan for the future, so I'm glad that <laughs> you know that you did. Government tends to plan for the need now. Yeah. Never thinking that when you're done making or building the thing that the need will be, you know, 10, 20 percent greater than the need now. That's frequently why roads open up and they don't do what they need to now. But um, yeah. I'm glad that you uh, planned ahead and and thought of the future. That's uh, 
I like to hear that. I also you know, like we, good cable management. So, oh, yeah, you and me both. And you know, we we tried to think, and I want to give our, our architects and engineer credit. FSB, who was the architect on the interior project, you know, they really put a lot of time and thought into how it's it's those things that if you're a member of the public and you're going to the Capitol, you'll never think about, you'll never see. But we put a lot of thought into what is this building going to be like and, and what what do we need to do to make sure that you know we're designing it in a way that at least for the next 25 or 30 years we're not going to have to come back and do major renovation you know right. who can say what what's going to be needed in 30 years from now technology is going to change so much but we've tried to make it at least for that next 25 to 30 years it shouldn't have to change much at all and that even goes into how we design you know, when you go into the offices and you look at the millwork in the offices, which is your shelving and your cases and your doors and everything like that, we tried to choose a style of millwork that would not, uh, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, you know, they had that green and orange shag carpet, right? Right. And then by the time the 90s get here, you're like, what were we thinking? <laughs> that is terrible. Well, we tried to pick a design for the Capitol that would be classic. That would not age out as the decades go on and it wouldn't look dated. And so I hope I hope that we were successful in that. I feel like we were, but we did put a lot of thought and time into trying to make sure that in 10 years we wouldn't people wouldn't need to come and just, you know, rip out a bunch of stuff. That's that's awesome. It's glad to hear. Especially if you've never been to Oklahoma and you didn't see the before and the after of the state capitol, when you're in town, I highly suggest going and at least seeing the after because it almost looks like a brand new building in a lot of ways just everything there was no you could tell they didn't cut corners and it uh looks amazing and that's why when i was doing this month on preservation i was like i have an in on somebody that did an amazing project i have to talk to him about this and so that was uh you know so i'm glad you came on you guys did an amazing job and my next question is um did is that really your hair did it stay or are you wearing a toupee or did you have to go to bosley uh to, to keep that head of hair you have on top there no this is this is totally a toupee this is okay a, <laughs> <laughs> no I'm, i thankfully i think i just can attribute it to good genetics you know i uh this is my natural hair color and it is my natural hair so i don't know what to say other than the fact that um you know, it was a really stressful project. It was a hard project. But one thing I do like to give a shout out to is, is we had the right contractors and the right people working on the job. And it, if it would have just been us as state employees like OMS or whoever caring about the building, but our contractors didn't, it would have been a terrible, you know, it just would have been a terrible experience. But I'm right. thankful that Manhattan Construction, J.E. Dunn Construction, all of the folks that they brought along for the ride, they cared about this project and they worked really, really hard to make sure that we got the details right. And I'm telling you, there's just so many times that we had to go back to the drawing board, you know, that we were looking at what a way to do something, either because of something we discovered in the building about how the building was was structured or engineered or put together back way back in 1915, 16, 17. We had to go back and figure out a new way. Or in some cases, some of the things that we wanted to do, the the powers that be in the building were like, nope, can't do that. You know, we don't mm -hmm. want you to yeah. do that. 
And so we had to go back and figure out a new way to do something as well, especially in those early days when we're trying to put together our conceptual design. So I'll say that we had a whole team of people, hundreds of people who cared about getting this project right. And thankfully it's evident. Like you said, when you go into the building, it's just, it's just incredible. It's awe-inspiring. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful capital. And I just always think about when I walk through the building, I think about, oh, I remember that problem that we had to solve to figure <laughs> this out. And I remember yeah. that problem. And I remember trying to figure out, okay, I see this security camera right here and trying to figure out how we were going to get the cabling to that camera through the craziness of how the building was designed. I mean, it's a giant concrete infrastructure building. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't envisioned at all for modern data cable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, for sure. uh, so it was just always all, you know, I, I just think of all of these pitfalls and perils we had to, to walk around and we had to overcome, but we were able to do it. Did we get everything exactly the way we wanted to on the first try? No, we didn't. But overall, it's come out really, really well. And I do encourage people to go and check it out. And it'll even be better over the next few months as all the artwork comes back. And in fact, uh, as part of our funding, we had art in public places funds. So there's going to be new art installed in the building as well. Cool. And so it's, it, I will say this, it turned out even better than I thought it would when we started. And that's, that's saying a lot because I had high expectations. Well, that, that's great to hear, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Out of everything you went through doing that, what, looking back, is sort of the favorite thing that happened? I don't know if it was like something that really sucked, and then it's an amazing transformation, or this was an incredibly complicated pro uh, problem, we solved it, you know, it worked out. What's sort of looking back kind of like the, you know, your favorite sort of aspect of the project? One of the hardest things that we had to encounter was um, we had a not in our original plan planned to replace the roof. We believed that the roof was in good enough shape that we could do some targeted repairs and some targeted replacement. But we, at the time, we didn't think that we needed to completely replace the roof. And one of the, one of the biggest oh crap moments, if you will, was J.E. Dunn was doing some inspection on the on the south roof and they they came to me and said mm, we found some things we feel like we need to do some more some deeper investigation and so we released them about fifty thousand dollars so they could really get the crack expert team up there do some really good investigation and figure out what we were dealing with and so you know you don't want to spend fifty thousand dollars on an investigation, but also you don't. Once again, you don't want to you don't want to leave a problem for somebody else. So we did. especially the roof because if the roof yeah. leaks, all that work you just did is ruined. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, the stakes are very high. Well, what we ultimately, what JE Dunn ultimately found, and and uh, they they put it all together in a report, and it was basically like you know guys, this copper roof. It's not good. It needs to be replaced. Or they said, if you don't want to replace it, here's some options that you can have. Once again, kind of to keep us limping along, but not the not the true long term solution. And at that point in the project, we had about nine million dollars in contingency. Now we were going to get another bond, 
and we were going to use some of the, the, you know, when you sell bonds, sometimes you sell them for more than face value because uh, it's because of how the bond market works and how, how investors decide to buy bonds and all these complicated things that I don't even really understand. Right yeah, now. that's a separate podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, but ultimately, we were going to sell more bonds. We've felt like the bond market was favorable enough that we would get more money that we could put into our contingency, but it wasn't a guaranteed thing. And Jay Dunn said, it's going to be about $9.3 million to totally replace the roof. And we're just like, that's our entire contingency. Like that's, that's it. That's everything. And after a lot of discussion with our team, we ultimately decided that it's the right thing to do. And it was hard because this is, we're talking 2019. So, you know, 2018, 2018. And so we're not nowhere close to being done with the project. You know, if you're, if you're six months away from being done with the project, then you're going to get rid of your entire contingency. You're like, okay, we can, we can make that roll. We're in the middle of the project, but we decided it was one of those things that you just shouldn't put a bandaid on that. It's exactly like you said. If your roof is failing, if you're getting water into info, well, then what difference does it make if you restored the inside of the building if you're just going to subject it to water? So we we made the hard decision. It was a hard decision, and we got some criticism from it from some some folks, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> but um, it was the right thing to do. And now, you know, a properly maintained copper roof will last 80 years. And now we have we have a, a and we have a good copper roof on that building that's going to last a long time, and uh, but it was it was a really hard thing to do. That's probably one you know you, you asked what was the hardest, but also one of my favorite. That's probably one of my favorite things. But then you can talk about you know we put in the new visitor entrance to the capital. Um, the main entrance wasn't going to serve anymore because it's not ADA accessible. Right. We put in this new beautiful entrance to the building that is just the, a proper way for people to enter the building. I'm so proud of that. I'm proud of the tunnel that goes from the east side of the Capitol underneath Lincoln Boulevard to the parking lot across the street. I'm yeah, proud of that. That tunnel always smelled like a locker room at a public swimming pool. Yes, because it leaked water. And it had yes. For, <laughs> it had, if years, if not decades. And so we completely dug it up and we re-waterproofed it. We redid the interior again. That's probably, I, you know, you talk about some of the things I get the most compliments on. Uh, the tunnel is probably one of the ones that's the most. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that we found the money to uh, restore many of the historic light fixtures in the building. I'm mm-hmm. proud that we were able to completely repaint the entire building uh, before it had been this kind of pastel pink and green motif all the way through the building. And it didn't really highlight the true, you know, nature of the ornamental plaster. A lot of the detail got lost in the paint scheme. And now you walk in, it's just like, boom, that plaster is just, it sticks out in the right places and it's just beautiful. And, you know, uh, for a while we weren't sure if we were going to have the budget to do that. So there's so many things that I'm just thankful that because because we managed the project well, we were able to do some things that even at first we weren't sure we were doing. That's, that's awesome. Going back on the contingency, if you watch Property Brothers, you know 
there's always that part in the episode where they have to break into that. And it's always super stressful for the homeowner. So imagine <laughs> going through, you know, with the project this large, that's the state capital and think, oh my gosh, if we do this, that's it, <laughs> you know, because you can't just go to the bank and get another loan. You know, you, no. It literally takes an act of Congress to get more money. <laughs> yeah. And so that's worst case scenario, right? You know, the worst case scenario is that you have to go back to the legislature and say, hey, you know, we missed it. I need 15 million more dollars to make this thing whole. Um, that was something that we wanted to avoid at all costs. And uh, and I'm glad we were able to do that. The great thing is, is also is, you know, we spent $280 million to restore the building and people think, and it's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. It's a ton of money. But when you compare our capital restoration to similar ones across the country, we're on the low end of that scale. When you look at Kansas was 330 million, Minnesota right. was 310 million. I think New Jersey was in the $300 million range. Uh, Wyoming was lower than ours at about 270, I think. But Wyoming has also has a much smaller capital than we do. So I'm I'm really I'm really gratified that once again we used our resources in a way that we got the maximum amount of quality from the dollars that we spent, but we spent them in such a way that our capital our capital expenditures didn't get anywhere near some of the other capitals what they yeah. spent. Yeah, it uh, it really is. I know I've said it before. It it's it's stunning to see it and. Uh, We've almost reached the end of uh, our hour, but I have two more questions for you. Question one, say, I don't know, the state of Oregon wants to redo their capital and they, they're they like, man, that Oklahoma rehab of their capital was awesome. And they contact you. Would you like to be in charge of redoing our capital? Would you turn them down? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. And, and uh, it, I guess it would depend on the compensation package and if I could have like a cabin in the forest somewhere in Oregon, that might be, <laughs> that might sway me a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, I love Oklahoma. I love living here. I love raising my family here. I'm really happy that I was able to do a capital restoration project here in the state of Oklahoma and the state that I call home. Uh, but I, I don't know that I can see myself doing another one. Um, but that being said, one of the things that I'm so grateful for is early on in our project, we we asked a lot of questions of the folks up in Kansas about how they went about doing their restoration. We, you know, what are the things that you did well that you loved, and what are the things that if you had them to do over again, you do you do differently. So we will always be available in any state that wants to reach out to me, and, and for that kind of advice, I'll always be available to do that because this is really something that you can only learn by doing. Right. And so the lessons that we learned from Kansas, I think saved us a lot of time and heartache. And we were able to get a jump start on the work that we needed to do because we kind of had a, a, we used them as an example. So I'll always be open, but I, I doubt that I will want to go somewhere else and do another <laughs> one. I, I don't blame you one bit. <laughs> and then uh, my last sort of question that I had planned on asking you to uh, beforehand is I know that you did not get to see this project to the, you know, come over the finish line because you moved over to the historical society, but do you still consider that to be your baby? Oh, 100%. 
100%. I'll, I'll say this, you know, it's so the project would be eight years in total. I was on it for about six and a half years. I did, if this opportunity at OHS would have come along three years or four years into it uh, of the capital project, I probably would have not done it because I wouldn't have felt like that I was leaving the capital project in a good enough place to, to go. I wanted to make sure that the capital project was, when I walked away, that whoever came behind me really had to, it was really just about tying up some loose ends and then moving on. And I think that's what I, what I did. Paul Haley came behind me. He works at OMES. He's an architect over there in the construction and properties department. He's done an incredible job of bringing this into the finish line. And I'm so thankful for him for doing that. But I really do feel like that it's my baby. And even today, I'm still involved. You know, I'm helping to plan the celebration for the end of the project, right. working with the governor's office. I'm, uh, you know, I'm working on some legislation that will help in terms of how we manage the building going forward. So there's things that I'm still involved in that even though I could walk away and not, you know, just say, oh, that's somebody else's problem. I feel too close to the building to just walk away and just let it go. So I do feel like that you can't do a project like that without feeling that you have some ownership and that it, it's something that that's yours and you don't want to just leave it, leave the fates up to chance. So I, I suspect that I'll always have opinions about it. And I'll always sort of guard it very carefully, especially right. <laughs> if I see it start to drift into some old habits in how it's managed that we need to change to make sure that we maintain the work that we've done. Sort of continuing the it's your baby metaphor. Well, at least the uh, stepdad that came in and took your place on the project, I guess, was trustworthy. So, with, <laughs> yeah, with your baby. <laughs> yeah, Paul's great. You know, I feel a little bad for him because, you know, it, it, you know, you have a lot of personalities to deal with in that building, and you know, it's it's just a different animal. And so, I feel like Paul kind of drew the short straw on that, but he's the right person to take it in, and we have a great relationship, and I'm, I'm thankful <laughs> that he took it on. Well, um, I appreciate you coming on the show. Like I said earlier, it is a Sunday. Took time away from your family to hang out with me and talk about this. I appreciate it. Hopefully my listeners find it as fascinating and as interesting as I have. It's nice to get to talk to, you know, and get all of like the inside scoop on a project of that scope and magnitude. So um, I really appreciate that. And... I guess that's about all I got for today. <laughs> I'll have you sure. on for follow-up questions later. <laughs> sure. Well, um, thanks for having me on. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat about it. So, well, yes, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm going to uh, end the show as I always do. Once again, I know that I fell miserably at this every time. But just remember, everybody, try to live your life in a way that would make Mr. Rogers proud. Bye. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button. 